Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on March 7th, 2012. I'm Steve Mursky. Two intrepid Scientific American staffers, Michael Moyer and Mark Fischetti, were at the recent annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, a treasure trove of discussions about research. Upon their return, Mike and Mark briefed each other on sessions they'd each attended. Topics include fracking and its associated environmental issues, tantalizing evidence of the Higgs, but not from the LHC, the question of cetacean rights, and Twitter and the upcoming election. Take it away, guys. My name is Michael Moyer. I'm here with Mark Fischetti. And the two of us were covering the American Association for the Advancement of Science Conference in Vancouver, Canada. And we're here to talk about what we saw. So, Mark, uh, what'd you see? Well, there are, there are a number of interesting sessions. Um, one that I was in had to do with fracking, um, breaking um, deep shales to get natural gas. Uh, and there's been a lot of controversy about fracking, uh, but there was a new study from the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, there was a whole session built around this study that basically said that um, the most worrisome sources of potential contamination of groundwater are in the, uh, the very top of the well if it's not cased correctly and in just plain chemical spills from the whole industrial nature of that. And then finally from storing wastewater in um, open ponds and tanks that leak into the ground. So I saw some some news about this that came out of the conference, and they basically the headline was "Fracking doesn't cause pollution." Um, the the things that happen surrounding fracking cause pollution, right? And that's is, a good, right, and it's a good question. It's also a good sort of technicality because the the industry defines fracking as just breaking the rock, and there's chemical and water that goes down there. So they say, hey, that chemicals, uh, those chemicals don't really pose a threat, but the entire operation is necessary to actually harvest natural gas. So everything involved in that operation is um, fair game for other people who are worried about the whole enterprise. Right. You can't have the the fracking down, you know, miles down without having the well up top where all these bad things can right. happen. Yeah, I guess right. exactly is, yeah. is the sort of yeah. thing you see. Um, but but it was interesting because people were wondering whether or not the chemicals that go into those wells can seep up through the miles into the groundwater, which is which is relatively shallow, right? Right, right. and that's that's um, the consensus seems to be that's not likely. But the, that, those chemicals come back up the well in the beginning stages, and if the top of the well is not built correctly, then it can spill out, and if it's not stored correctly, then it's going to leach into the ground too. So here's something that I've never really understood about fracking: is that if the problem with fracking isn't the the fracking itself, it's the chemicals that they use to do the fracking. Why don't you just do fracking with water or, or something that's benign? Yeah. yeah, well, well, it is mostly water, but the chemicals are in there to help uh, for lubrication and other reasons. It's a good question. There are actually some proposals, uh, not, and not at AAAS, but we, we've actually done a little work on our website about alternative ways to frack. Um, and one of the leading ones is to, <laughs> is to use natural gas to uh, under pressure to force the rock open, um, which you would think you could just contain when it flowed back up because you're looking to contain the gas anyway. So, so that's like using using oil to drill an oil well yeah, in yeah, a way. Right, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, well, I've heard crazier things that yes. could happen. So, what about you? 
Um, well, I, I saw a number of things. Uh, I stuck more towards a, the physics and technology side of the conference, which um, every year seems to get a little smaller and smaller as these environmental issues become more uh, at the forefront of the conference. But um, one of the interesting things I saw wa- were some um, scientists from the big particle physics colliders. One, uh, the Tevatron outside of Chicago, which uh, shut down last year. We had a story in the magazine about its legacy. Um, and then, of course, the LHC in Geneva, which is currently searching for the Higgs boson. Um, everyone thought, okay, once the Tevatron shuts down, there's no way that uh, they're going to come out with any more results about the Higgs. Um, the Higgs boson is the famous undiscovered particle, the last part of the standard model that gives all other particles mass, or at least is thought to. Turns out that there's still a lot of un- uh, unsorted data. Uh, they haven't done the data analysis on a lot of the stuff from the Tevatron and haven't had the chance. And they're going to be coming out um, this month in March with their final analysis of Higgs data from the Tevatron. And uh, the top scientists for one of the experiments there said that they would have, quote, very interesting results. So you know, what does very interesting mean in particle physics? Does it mean that they're going to find it or, or say it's not there at all? Uh, when I asked him later about that, he said that they're going to be able to um, identify the Higgs or, or not identify the Higgs. He didn't say what, what exactly the results are going to be. But he said, if it's there, we will be able to identify it with what's called three sigma certainty. And three sigma is uh, a statistical term, which basically means it's something like 95% certainty, which is not enough to formally declare a discovery by the rules of particle physics. You need a five sigma certainty, which is, I think, 99.99% sure that it's there. So I thought that that was interesting that there was a little bit of uh, uh, particle physics news coming out. Right. It's so, so, but so then what do they say at the actual session? Was the session a big tease then? And uh, we'll get back to you in March. <laughs> yeah, they basically said we're, we'll get back to you in March. Uh, they also... The, spoke about, uh, I mean, the, the managing director of CERN, which is the particle physics lab in Europe, um, spoke a little bit about their hunt. Uh, they spoke also about the um, the neutrino results that came out last year. Um, and uh, just a short background on this, as, as most of you listening have probably heard, uh, last year at um, uh, CERN, they shot neutrinos through the earth to a lab in Italy, uh, which uh, picked them up. They had a funny result in that the re- neutrinos seem to get there faster than the speed of light, which is um, uh, which is thought to be impossible by Einstein's theory of uh, special relativity. So the question is, and the experimenters said this when it came out last year, what did we do wrong? We must have done something wrong. What did we do wrong? We can't figure it out. So here's the here's the results, everybody. You you guys figure it out. So um, what happened after this was very interesting. It, the uh, lab, uh, uh, Fermi Lab in the U.S., was not able to do the same experiment uh, right at the time, even though it was very similar, because they just didn't have the right equipment, the electronics, to be able to do that. As soon as this came out, they said, oh, boy, we should try and replicate this. So they went and they bought the high-end electronics. Um, They're starting – actually, they just started to shoot neutrinos from Fermilab to uh, a mine in Minnesota. And they hope to have results in May 
which should uh, confirm or deny the earlier results. Um, CERN is, of course, doing the experiment again, and they should have their further results later in the summer. That's interesting. Do we know the path that the neutrinos are shot along so we shouldn't stand in the way? Yeah. Well, if you're tr- if you're looking to not be in the path of neutrinos, then you're, um, you're going to be in trouble because there are trillions of neutrinos going through us right this very second, um, no matter where you are. So if you hear any artifacts on this recording, that's the neutrinos. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's... <laughs> It's not the iPhone I left on in my pocket, um, definitely. So uh, what besides the fracking? There was a big session and there were some other sort of um, public events surrounding cetacean rights. So cetaceans, whales, dolphins. Um, and it, there, it was an interesting group of scientists on one hand and philosophers as well. Um, so the scientists are just making a case that we should consider cetaceans as individual beings, non-human persons. And uh, based on on recent research, which shows that cetaceans are self-aware, that they have um, they have um, abilities to communicate individually, also that they they have a sense of self, sense of community. So the the there's a brain brain studies are starting to back up the notion that these animals at least have higher order brain function, which qualifies them as persons, not humans. So humans is a biological concept. And persons is a philosophical concept. And so um, if that's the case, then they should be afforded certain non-human person rights or cetacean rights. And there's an interesting philosopher, Tom White, from Loyola uh, Marymount University, who is explaining why this is uh, – uh, it's as valid to think of individual people as persons as it is to think of animals as individual animals as persons. And if you, if you accept all this, then it means certain basic rights should be afforded to them, like um, they shouldn't be killed. Um, they shouldn't be captured for the reasons of being kept in captivity. Um, they shouldn't be bred mm-hmm. in captivity for the purposes of our entertainment. And it, uh, uh, these are things that are commonly done with whales and dolphins at, at zoos and aquariums. And if you think about applying those criteria to individual people, you certainly wouldn't kill or capture or breed them for entertainment. So why shouldn't we afford cetaceans the same level of basic rights like that in any case? So it was an interesting discussion. And there's sort of a movement out there if you're interested and you look on the web for cetacean rights, you'll find a lot. Well, I mean, my my response to that would be the reason why we don't have to necessarily uh, bestow those rights is because they're not people. <laughs> I it's it's hard for me to understand the the distinction between human and and person. Would we, you know, call for instance a chimpanzee a person? Yeah, and that came up right away. So uh, right, where do you draw the line? Yeah. Right, because chimpanzees are self aware, they have social structures and all that. Um, and that came up. Um, the scientists had a little more trouble answering that question. Um, some of them resorted to um, brain scans, which is where a lot of this is coming from. Mm. And if you look at the brain suscitations, there are lots of folds and all that kind of very, very surprisingly similar to human brains in the surface features. And, whereas, and some of the primates have some of that going on. So that, 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 get, that is sort of the, the question ultimately is where do you draw the line? But now you're, you're, they're back to defining this uh, philosophical description of personhood based on um, a physical characteristic, which is brain folds, yeah. right? Which right. is um, seems kind of tr- troublesome if you're making the distinction. The initial distinction is between the biological distinction between humans and and uh, and a person. Well, I think yeah, I think Tom White was using that to say, don't think of this as human rights. That you wouldn't afford cetaceans or primates the same rights as humans. Um, different different order, but maybe there's some 
simple fundamental rights that they should be afforded. Mm. Um, and I'm sure the, um, the research community and who deal with primates would agree with that. Mm. <laughs> mm. Certainly. That's, uh, that's very interesting. I, I didn't know that was going on. Um, one of the things with uh, – since, since we're speaking of primates, um, I saw one session on politics, uh, which uh, – uh, I thought what was saying <laughs> was non-human primates, uh, the study of, um, uh, and it was a it was a session on on ways to use Twitter um, to kind of figure out the um, uh, the difference between truth and fiction uh, in in politics. And uh, may, let me describe what I mean. It, these scientists, which are uh, information scientists uh, from the University of Indiana, have have looked at the, the political specifically uh, tweets going back and forth uh, with people and uh, have tried to identify just through the structure of the networks that the tweets form. So if if um, I talk to you, Mark, right, over Twitter, I, I reply to you and then you reply to me and then I um, take our, con- our little tweet conversation and I talk to somebody else. You could think of that as a little network that's forming with these connectors between it. That happens just in in large scale every day on Twitter where people uh, form a conversation over what are called hashtags, which are little identifying um, labels so that people can figure out what you're talking about. Uh, And by looking at the structure of these networks, they can find um, uh, basically spam bots, which are just uh, uh, fake accounts designed to push a certain candidate or to uh, belittle another candidate um, just through the structure of how they speak with one another. They'll have two bots engage in a, quote, conversation back and forth to each other. So everyone else will say, oh, well, these must be two people who were, who were talking. But no, they're actually bots. Um, so you know, this is going to be interesting because it's going to be important, uh, much more so in the run-up to this presidential election than it was in, uh, for instance, 2008. In 2008, Twitter was just a year old and not that many people used it. So is it is it fair to say that there's worry that these bots are gonna could could sort of skew what's being gleaned from the social network as where where people's preferences are? And- well, the worry is that um, these bots are going to be used in um, insidious ways to spread misinformation and lies, okay, right? right? Which right. politicians have been doing since the dawn of time. Uh, it was thought, you know, in the early well, wide-eyed days of Twitter, that now, now we have um, citizens who are going to be able to say what they really think, mm-hmm. and we're going to be able to get away from these uh, the mass media that kind of controls the few outlets we have. Um, but of course, whatever tool you have is just going to be co-opted by uh, the political forces that be. And so, the, the study, which is called, uh, which I think is brilliant, the Truthy Project. Um, at Indiana right. is designed to kind of be able to separate this this fact from fiction on Twitter. Right. If you'd like to know anything more about these topics, we, of course, have a lot of information up on scientificamerican.com. Um, for now, though, uh, for my colleague Mark Fischetti, uh, my name is Michael Moyer. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.